You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Morning, Redemption Church. Um, so we enter into what is known as Holy Week, where we look at the, the week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and our celebration of Easter Sunday. Um, and this, this story that we looked at this morning, where Jesus gets on a donkey and begins to ride into Jerusalem, there is uh, packed into it a number of different things. And I I think sometimes we can pick this story apart and theologically pull all of the really rich and good and beautiful things out of it. But I want us to pause for just a moment and I want you to actually enter the story with me. We just, just take a minute and imagine the scene. What might you hear What are you seeing? If you will really take a moment and put yourself in this scene, where are you standing in proximity to Jesus? Are you close to him? Are you far away? Are you enthusiastically shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, throwing your cloak on the road? Or are you at a distance with some curiosity and intrigue looking to see what happens next? What do you feel? Like internally, what are you feeling? But also, like, are you being jostled around by the crowd? Are you the one jostling, trying to push your way forward? What are the disciples doing? What are the looks on their faces? What do you smell? I think... Uh, there's an important practice here that we can regularly enter into when we allow ourselves to let these stories be actual, real, material stories. Stories that we're actually and really invited into in many ways and stories that actually and really affect our material life. And if uh, we need any sort of reminding this week that physicality matters, I think taking some time to do that is helpful. It's difficult to continue to exist in a world where violence done to innocent human beings is just normal. It's 
difficult to continue living in a world where this happens over and over and over again, and no matter how angry we are, no matter how many petitions we sign, and no matter who we vote for, no matter how many Instagram feeds we post, and no matter how many thoughts and prayers we give, there is still violence upon violence upon violence upon violence, and violence is always done to us physically. And there's something deep within every single one of us, regardless of what you believe or what you think, that knows our bodies actually, really, materially matter. And that violence done to the material world, especially violence done to a human body, is atrocious and it is unholy and it is a perverse profanity of something that God has made sacred. So I want to spend the rest of our morning um, convincing you of that. <laughs> I, I think, though, we don't really need convincing. I think we know this deep down. One of the things that I want to regularly invite us into is into the physicality of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who has actually come and done something physically for us that affects us physically and really. And so with that, um, I could probably end my sermon there, but uh, you got another 30 minutes, so hang on. So there was this strange teaching that began to spread around the early followers of Jesus. You've probably heard of it, but you might not know actually what it consisted of, so I'll give you like a really brief rundown because that seemed fun to do. Um, it, it, was a, it was a teaching that prioritized personal spiritual knowledge or gnosis over the material world. This special knowledge is what separated true and distinct Christians or followers of the true God from everyone else. Right? So if you had this special knowledge, if you knew the types of information that you needed that the other groups didn't have, then you were in and they were out. It varied in a number of ways, but the basic teaching was something like this. There is a great unknowable deity. You're going to love his name. He's called the Monad, and all of our middle school selves are chuckling, maybe just my middle school self, or maybe just my adult self. <laughs> okay, yeah, I guess, guess just me. Um, and the Monad was the source of all things of life and goodness and wisdom and knowledge. So far, so good. And from this deity emanated like these lesser deities. And so there's like this, I don't know, lava lamp style, like the big monad is producing these smaller, lesser entities, these demigods. Um, and there was this one particular one called the Demiurge. And you already know he's a good guy because listen to his name, Demiurge, right? No, obviously he is a bad guy. That's a terrible name. Uh, the Demiurge was a bad guy and he is an artisan who created and shaped the material world. It is literally like a potter, a craftsman. And the Demiurge opposed the monad, this unknowable higher God, and wanted to create a world of their own without the consent of the monad. So far, so good. Like, wow, this sounds like my church. No, no, not yet, but hold on. The Demiurge then attempted to entrap emanations of the divine in the created material world. And so there are these like good spiritual things out in the world that this craftsman like maliciously in opposition to the good and beautiful uh, God or source of all things, they then trap those spiritual things in material vessels as like a big middle finger to the monad. 
And the Demiurge became known and worshipped as God in the material world through material things. This is where this gets fun. You're like, okay, interesting. This is, right, and in this, in this teaching, right, I'm not saying that this is true, so please, like, that's an important caveat. Um, in this teaching, this became the God of the Old Testament. That the God of the Old Testament that demands physical sacrifices and visceral worship was actually the Demiurge. Uh, fast forward through, like, the theology and the thinking of this type of teaching. And this is, it led to the logical conclusion in the 18th century where people concluded that Satan was actually the good guy and Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, was the bad guy. And like we had just all been deceived and the whole thing, the whole story had been flipped. But the true and unknowable God, the monad, sent another lesser God who was God's only son to reveal to the world this true and divine knowledge of this unknowable God. This special knowledge became the key to enlightenment and understanding, which allowed one to be freed from the material world and to be put back into the rightful place among the divine essence. This is... uh, Mormonism in some sense, it's Scientology in some sense, it's also modern day Christian evangelicalism in some sense. And let me explain what I mean. This early teaching became one of the first teachings that the community of Jesus was forced to respond to because the implications centered not just on who Jesus was or what to make of the Old Testament, both very important questions, but more importantly, how do we relate to God and one another? How do we relate to God and one another? What does it actually look like for me to love God and love my neighbor? Is it just knowledge? The more information I have about God, then the more I love God. The more information I have about God, then the more spiritual I am. The more information I have, the smarter I am and the better neighbor I am. And of course, we would say, no, that's not true. And yet, a massive change occurred when this belief over and over and over and over and over and over again infiltrated Christian thinking. And it was one that the church very strongly came out and said, no, no, that's not what Jesus taught us. That's not what Jesus is inviting us into. I don't know what this is, but this is not the life that Jesus uh, describes and invites us to. It's, it's something entirely different. And in fact, in all of these practical ways, it, it's leading to the opposite of life. It's leading to the opposite of love of neighbor. It's leading to the opposite of love of God. It's trickled into our thinking in like, right, our thinking both in this room, but our thinking just in Western civilization as the idea that we are primarily souls trapped in bodies. That the most important part of you is your inner self, your soul, your spirit. That's what matters and that's what matters to God. In fact, your neighbor's soul is what matters to God. Who cares about their body? What's their eternal status? Where's their soul going to go when they die? That's what's really important. And we compartmentalized life with God. 
And this has led to all sorts of disordered ways of being with God, being with the world, being with one another. At the end of the day, I want to help us return to the reality that Jesus insists and shows us that our bodies actually really matter. That our neighbor's bodies actually really matter. Okay, so history lesson over. I want to bring this into 2023. I I just have to pause and think for like half a second to even know what year it is. Oh my gosh. So this teaching is called Gnosticism, and it shows up in a variety of different ways. It's this idea that dualism exists. Usually the material world is bad, the spiritual world is good, and it pops up in all sorts of strange and funny ways over and over and over again. Um, But one of the versions of this story, because Western civilization has been largely impacted by Christian thinking, and, and some of this thinking has impacted into like Western civilization. And so when we began to like say, hey, no, no, God is dead and actually just it's the material world and biology and what can you sh- uh, measure and test and da-da-da, um, we see this in two big kind of ways in our culture. Two stories that we've likely encountered, two stories that are attempting to shape and form us as human beings. The first story is a secular story. And this is the idea, I love the song, I don't know who wrote it, uh, where it came from. It's the song that we're all chemicals. Does anyone know what that's, who that is? You're like, no, we don't listen to secular music, Brandon. We only listen to KSBJ all day long. Okay, well, bless you. Uh, right, it's this song from like the mid-2000s, and it's literally just like some sort of club song, like, and it's just, we are chemicals, and it's just over and over. We're chemicals, we're chemicals, we're chemicals. And the whole point is like, like YOLO, let's get high and let's like feel pleasure and let's just embrace the fact that we, live, we eat and drink today because tomorrow we're gonna die. We are just physical matter. And that's all we are. We are, are, are. Okay, you are material and nothing more. You are merely a composite of chemicals and atoms and a strand of DNA sequencing. This determines your behavior and your personality and that you have no free will. This goes down this weird rabbit hole. But you are the sum of your biological appetites felt as bodily needs and desires. So that my chemicals in me determine who I am, what I am, and what I ought to do as a human being. They define me. And in this story, bodies, both ours and our neighbors, are commodified. They simply become a means to an end. Right? This is like a really rudimentary, and I know some of you are like super into evolution, and I'm not. I apologize for that. It's not because I'm anti-evolution. It's just because I just don't have time to read that. And so like, I'm going to like really grossly misrepresent that, and I just want to apologize in advance for that. But this is literally like survival at the fittest in its most basic form. I'm going to do what's right for me and use you and your body in a way that helps me get ahead or feel better, or whatever it is we are trying to achieve. And this literally dehumanizes us. And we we don't just do this to our neighbor, we do this to ourselves. One of the most pernicious ways that this works is that human beings are reduced to material objects and our uh, sexuality, like our what other people sexually desire from us is the highest and most important thing. I used to own a CrossFit gym and this was one of the things that we like had to figure out how do we like deal with this because people come in and they want to work out because they want to look good on the beach. And they don't want to look good on the beach necessarily for themselves. Sometimes that was the case. And they don't want to look good on the beach because that's healthier and it'll lead to like a long lasting life. Although sometimes that was the case. In general, it's just, I want people to look at me 
And, and I don't mean like uh, sexuality in terms of like the actual act of sex, even though it's a part of it, but sexuality in, in this outward need for validation. This uh, ambition to extend ourselves beyond. I want to look better than the person next to me. I want to be the most desirable object on the beach. Or at least more desirable than the person next to me. Or at least more desirable than I am now. And so I want to do sit-ups. Right? And you're like, uh, okay, hold on. Can we talk? Right? And I know that's not the only way that this works. This also becomes a driving part of our self-esteem when we begin to see ourselves as cogs in a wheel that our sense of self and worth and value comes in our production. What can you do? What can you achieve? And are you tapping into your full potential? How often do we see a young person who's growing up and makes a mistake or chooses to go down this path versus that path and you hear someone say something like, what a waste. Wait, so their value is tied to what? Their production. What have you done for society? What have you done for me? What have you done for yourself? And that's all like well and good when you're 20 and you've got the whole world in front of you, but when you're 38 and your body's being racked by a chronic disease and you can barely get out of bed in the morning, where's your value and where's your worth? Not just to yourself, but to the people around you, to your community. The day, and it it will come for all of us, the day that we can no longer contribute to our community, to our friend groups, to the people that we love, will we begin to internalize this idea that we are what we produce, we are what we do. There's a second way, a second story that exists in the world, and I realize that no one's living into these stories fully, at least most of us aren't. Um, The second story is one that most of us in the room are probably really familiar with. It's the idea that we are souls in a body. Our bodies are not means to an end, but instead are vessels for the actual important part of us. And so our bodies don't matter at all, just our souls. In fact, right, that's in its tame and nice version. There's even a worse version of this that says, no, no, your, your body is actually deceitful and wicked and filled with sin. Right, and we get this from Paul's language of flesh, not really even understanding what Paul is saying when he uses the word flesh, and we begin to inherit this idea, material world is bad, spiritual world is good, I need to go and live a spiritual life and not a material one. And in that, we inherit this idea that our bodies are bad or at least unimportant. That what we do with our bodies uh, can only stain our souls, and that what we know about God is actually more important than the act of loving God with our bodies. Right? And, we, and we see this in, so I used to work in a missions office at a large church. And the way that we did missions, uh, going out into the world and sharing the gospel, was... Um, overwhelmingly intellectual. We're going to go out into the world and we're going to tell you some information and when, you're, when you receive that information, then your soul will be saved and our work is done and we will go back home. 
And there was a whole other way of doing missions that people in like mainline churches and Catholic churches that did where they would like go into these places and like build homes and missions. And we were like, weirdos, what are you doing? Like, why are you giving them a house? Save their souls, right? This is the practice of uh, that thinking worked out. Or my spirituality is equated to my theology, what I know about God. And so we sit around in our hub groups, and the most important thing we can do is talk about information or learn new information as if somehow that equates to spiritual life. In either case, the stories that these stories tell is that you and I have bodies, not that we are bodies. And that is a very important distinction. So the point I want to make this morning is that to be human is to be embodied. And there is no version of that that exists in the scriptures where that is not the case. We're going to spend a whole like series after Easter talking about this of like, wait, hold on. What do we do with heaven and hell and resurrection and the fact that like we have this whole idea of what happens to our souls when we die? We're going to spend a long time talking about that, but just go with me here for just a second this morning. To be human is to be embodied. Look at Genesis chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles with you, open it up to Genesis chapter 2. I want you to see this in front of you. Um, I'm reading out of the uh, NRSV in this portion of the text, I believe. So I'm going to skip around a little bit, but Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 through 8 say this, the Lord God formed or fashioned, or right, this is that craftsman language, formed the human from the topsoil of the earth and breathed into the human's nostrils the breath of life. And the human became a living being. And I love this word. So the word for, you want to hear the Hebrew word for living being, it's beautiful. You want to hear what it is? It's literally neck. And the human became a neck, right? Um, It's sometimes translated as soul or life force. And you can begin to understand why they associated the neck with your soul and your life force. Because if you got no neck, you got problems. Like life will not follow the necklace, right? Skip down to verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good for the human to be alone. I will make a companion for him who corresponds to him. So the Lord God, verse 21, so the Lord God caused the human to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was asleep, he took part of the human's side and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God fashioned a woman from the part he had taken out of the human, the man, And he brought her to the human. And then the human saying, this one is at last bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. It is earthy, physical, material, flesh and blood and bone. This is what God created human beings as. Your bodies are not bad. Your bodies were created by God. Your bodies are loved by God. In the Hebrew world, there is no construct of dualism. To be human is to be embodied. And and like if you go back and you look into the Hebrew, like Old Testament for like heaven, for example, some some version of when I die, my soul goes to heaven. It does not exist. To experience heaven was to physically be in a physical uh, proximity to the land, to God, in your body. And that proximity would give you 
actual physical material flourishing. This is, uh, the Hebrew word for this is shalom, that you experience peace, you experience wholeness, you experience life abundant. But this theme is illustrated in Adam and Eve's undergoing separation and proximity from God when they are removed from the garden after they sin. And so embodiment is is essential to, to being a human. And this is precisely why God became a human. God, who is not human, who is not embodied, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, came down into the material world that he created and became part of it. This is the Christmas story. And he did not become part of it to liberate you from it. No, 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 he became part of it to save it to redeem it, to restore it. This is Chip and Joanna, like, but in like cosmic level, okay? He became flesh and blood to the point that he spilled his blood for the sakes of our bodies. This week, as we head towards Good Friday, we do well to meditate on the fact that everything Jesus experienced leading up to what we celebrate on Easter was actually and really embodied. One of the practices I would invite you into over this week is as you read through the story of Holy Week, what does Jesus feel like when Judas actually betrays him? What was he thinking as he washed Peter's feet? What were the sights and sounds and smells as he tore the bread and said, this is my body? And anguish as he prayed, God, let this cup pass from me. What what type of anxiety was he feeling? What was like the stress that was in his shoulders, the burden and the weight that his body was physically feeling? And even here, riding on a donkey as he is celebrated as the arriving king, He is both physically embodied and he is culturally embodied into a culture with its own sights and smells and sounds and rhythms. So our bodies matter to God. Main point, bodies matter to God. But what do we do with this? This dualism that leads us to struggle with engaging God in our like everyday earthly life with the pressures and the anxiety and the stress of just Mondays. <laughs> Mondays, am I right? Right, like what does Jesus have to do with our Mondays? The embodiment of Jesus says everything. Jesus has everything to do with your Mondays. And it's not that he wants you to escape from your Mondays and go and live life on a beach, although that would be fantastic. If anyone's like called to be a monk on a beach somewhere, by all means, God bless, go and do it. But most of us are going to like trudge through our Mondays and it's going to be hard work to be aware of the presence of God in the midst of that. But it's even harder work when we like implicitly believe that God has no interest in it. God cares about the mundane and boring everyday parts of your life. So then, how do we begin the process of what many people call re-embodiment? How do we practice spiritual lives in our bodies in a way that like honors our bodies, listens to our bodies, pays attention to our bodies, um, and maybe some ways that are weird? 
So one of the things I love about the Old Testament in their worship, and even like this is in the New Testament as well, we just don't see it described as thoroughly and as boringly, if we're being really honest, is how visceral worship of God was. Like it was very much, hey, you walk into this room and here's what the room looks like because you carved it out of this type of wood into these types of shapes and then you're gonna take this type of object and you're gonna do this with it and then once you do this with it, you're gonna do that with it and here's what it's gonna smell like and here's what's happened, right? And we like completely miss that in evangelical-ish Christianity in 2023. Unless we're Orthodox or Catholic, we walk into church and don't think about what we're smelling. We don't think so often about what we're seeing. I remember um, touring one of the Eastern Orthodox churches. There's two that I know of in Houston. And this was new one out like in Katy, right? So Houston's kind of not, like, Katy's not Houston, but you get it. And they're walking in and they're like really proud of their building, which is like a whole thing. They just built it. And you look up and it's like this big dome and it's really beautiful and it's gold. And someone asked them about it and like, hey, you know, you painted that. And they're like, yeah, that's 24 karat gold. And here's how much it's worth. And we're like, whoa, y'all do things different. It was a lot of money, right? And the whole thing is like, we could take this money and feed the poor with it. Like, what are you doing? Painting your ceiling with literal 24 karat gold. And uh, part of me wants to like stand in judgment as a post-evangelical over that and be like, silly people, I love Jesus better than you. And yet, there's also something really beautiful about what they're trying to physically capture. This space is valuable. This is where we meet the presence of the resurrected Jesus together in community. How dare we not put proper shingles on it, right? <laughs> and so I'm not saying we need to, there's no painting projects in uh, the works right now uh, with gold anyways. Um, but how does physical space actually impact our worship or how can it impact our worship? Okay, so I want to make three, three final points here, and then we'll be done for the morning. Three ways that we relate with our bodies. Um, the first is we, we need to learn how to relate to ourselves bodily. I think that this is probably one of the most foundational pieces because so much of us are just naturally disembodied. The things that matter uh, for the most part in our world and culture is information, learning, reading, scrolling, like very much like disembodied stuff. It's like, what am, I, what am I seeing and thinking about is what tends to matter most versus what am I actually physically doing? And so the two ways to be aware of our bodies, just really simple, notice and tend. Notice and tend. Notice your body, right? And this isn't like staring in the mirror and be like, oh yeah, that is pretty nice. I see what God likes about it. That's pretty good, right? Like, what are you, what are you feeling? And there's a whole way of praying that is kind of tied to this, where you just, at the end of the day, you reflect on, it's called self-examine, where you reflect on your day and stress and celebration and whatever. What, what are you feeling? Right, when I, when I do this, um, like immediately I'm like, <gasps> Okay, I got some, uh, some things in my chest and I can feel the weight and like, okay, wait, hold on. There's, there's some like stress here. What, what do you, wait, what is the stress? Oh, it's fear. What, what is the fear? Where's the fear coming from? Oh, you're afraid you're going to fail. Oh, you're afraid you're not good enough. You're afraid you're going to mess it up. You're afraid, right, dot, dot, dot. And now I have a real invitation into the presence of God 
to really entrust my fear and myself fully. Like, God, I am really stressed out about this. I, I have no control over this, and I wish that I did. I know it's not good that I, that I want control over this, but I do want control over this, and it's stressing me out, and it's keeping me up, and God, will you help me, right? There's real invitation when we notice to understand how we're entering the presence of God. Okay, this is a silly story, but I think it's, uh, we have to make this super practical also. So I'm doing this this week, and I'm just kind of like in the middle of my day. It's like, I don't know, 10 o'clock in the morning, and I'm walking around in the hallway, and I'm like, okay, just notice. What's going on with your body? And the, the thoughts that occurred to me was like, I'm really tired. <laughs> I'm just like, not just sleepy, but like the deep tired. You know what I mean? And then I had the second thought of like, I'm actually really thirsty. Neither of these are super spiritual. They're like the, the heavens didn't part and the you know, heavens rended down and then God said, right? No, so I like really practically, like I'm tired and I'm thirsty. And so I went and got some water and I committed to myself, hey, instead of watching whatever tonight, I'm going to go to bed a little bit earlier. And instead of waking up and working out early in the morning, I'm actually going to sleep in and I'm going to tend to this. Because I am a limited being I am not God. And I can drive myself into the ground trying to serve you or to serve others or to build up my name or whatever. And at the end of the day, none of that matters. And so you notice and then you tend. Um, Sorry, I made that longer than I wanted to. Our bodies can tell us what's really going on. So Krista Tippett uh, is a renowned journalist and the host of an award-winning podcast called On Being. It's great. I recommend it. Um, But she says this, and I love this as, one, as a segue, (laughs) but then two, as just a like, oh, wow, I don't know that we are regularly as like uh, people who live in this world, in this context, that we're regularly invited into this. She said, I have yet to see anyone who becomes more, sorry, I have yet to see anyone who became more aware of their body and its fragility and grace without also then becoming more compassionate to all of life around them. Because I think once you understand what's going on in your body, it helps you better understand what's going on in the body of your neighbor and have a great deal of compassion for what's going on in the body of your neighbor. It makes you slow down instead of just pushing through. And so we naturally move into the next part, relating to others bodily, or we call this justice. We begin to realize that as we relate to ourselves bodily, our love of neighbor is also an embodied practice. To love our neighbor means to love their bodies. So there's something about, yes, we need to go build houses for them. Yes, we need to give them food. Yes, we need to like materially care for one another. This is what love looks like. And one of the most shocking discoveries in mental health is the lasting physical impact of trauma. Right? So if you know of the book, um, The Body Keeps the Score, um, there's a psychiatrist and author who kind of has made this popular. And it's this idea that the trauma that we experience, oftentimes as children, can affect our bodies for decades, if not the rest of our life. So listen to what um, he says here. 
We've learned that trauma is not just an event that takes place sometime in the past, it is also the imprint left by that experience on the mind, brain, and body. This imprint has ongoing consequences for how the human organism uh, manages to survive in the present. Trauma results in a fundamental reorganization of the way mind and brain manage perceptions. Like the synapses in your brain are literally being rewired by trauma. It changes not only how we think and what we think about, but also our very capacity to think. And this is like, wow, that's terrible news. The good news is, is this then means we can begin to be part of the redemption process and undoing that in how we treat one another. Actually, really, physically, materially creating and embracing and loving and forgiving and giving grace and grace and grace. James says it this way in James chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. You, you've probably heard of this. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, right? We'll, pl- we'll pray for you. But you do not give them what the body needs. What good is that? Hey, we'll pray for you but we won't actually do anything for you. Thoughts and prayers are not enough. Instagram posts and anger are not enough. We have to find ways to love bodily. And this can help us as a community, as people who are trying to follow Jesus in an upside down and chaotic and crazy world, begin to understand the way forward. What are the spaces that we inhabit? What are the things that we can actually put our fingers on and begin to influence and change? What are the conversations that we can have? Who are the people that we need to be loved, that, are, that we need to love that are right in front of us? And how can we meet needs and love well embodied? That is justice. And then lastly, we relate to God bodily. And relating to God bodily helps us recapture our vis- visceral embodied reality. As we relate to God bodily, it begins to invite God into the rest of our bodily life. Like, so the way that I can relate to God bodily on a Sunday can invite God into my desk on a Monday. We can physically engage this reality and we can merge heaven and earth and we can bring back together the spiritual and the material And this can be transformative and life-giving to our souls. And so our breathing, our posture, what we see and hear and sense and feel, it's all part, can be all part of our experience of God. And so some some ideas around this, there's a million of them. Creating a, a sacred space that you go to pray at regularly, whether that's in your office or your car or your home. Your posture as you pray. What does your body do? What does it need to do? Lord, I, I, I want to perform for you right now, but instead I need to just relax and rest in your presence. Or I'm a, I'm a little too like full of myself right now, God, so I need to get on my face before you in your presence and remind myself and my body that I am not God, you are. I need to allow myself to weep in your presence, Jesus. I need to allow myself to feel and to do the things that are embodied. Uh, the author Jane Venard explains that doing this allows us to engage God with our entire selves. So she says it this way, praying with all of who we are, our physicality, our emotions, our intuitions, our imaginations, our minds, and all of our experiences 
Therefore, when we pray with body and soul, or love with body and soul, or belong with body and soul, we are believing, responding, surrendering with all who we are. And what this ends up meaning is that what we do with our bodies can actually begin to form and shape us in a way that is... I know, rebellious to the ways that we're formed and shaped by some of these competing stories. There's um, a famous book by a guy, James K.A. Smith, and he spends his whole book talking about this, how what we do like, actually shapes what we love and how what we love actually shapes who we are and then flips it and so that we can actually enter into physical practices and ways of being that can begin to shape our affections. And as, our, that, as those are, affections are shaped, we can begin to become the types of people that Jesus is inviting us to be. Hillary McBride says it this way, we do not think ourselves into new ways of living, we live ourselves into new ways of thinking. What we do with our bodies actually really matters. Jesus shows us this. His love for us is not just extended to our souls or even to our minds or even just to our inner selves. His love for us is extended to our bodies. And he extends an invitation into embodied life with God in the world, the material world, to be enjoyed and delighted in. He's given you a span of life. He's not asking you to go spend it in a prayer closet. He's asking you to go and spend it in the expanse of creation that he's created. And yes, it's broken and it's fractured, but he's assured us that he's redeeming it and renewing it. And so we can have weeks like this where, yes, we mourn the brokenness, but we lead up to a celebration of resurrection where we enjoy and delight in one another with our bodies. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.